Hey everybody, welcome to a brand new episode of Stuff Said with Greg Shegel. I am Greg Shegel. I'm your host. I'm a cartoonist. I talk to other people in the world of comics, cartooning, and related fields. On this episode, I'm talking to Richard Starkings. Richard Starkings is probably most known either as the, the main man behind Comicraft, the digital lettering and design house, or the creator and writer of Elephant Men, published by Image Comics. Richard was also an editor at Marvel UK, self-publisher under his imprint, Active Images. He's done all kinds of stuff. And he's a man who, who speaks with, with a wisdom and history of comics. As he says in this conversation, he reads more about comics than he might read comics. And he reads a lot of comics. And he's, he's great to talk to. One, he's got an awesome accent, which stuff said first first guest with an accent unless i'm misremembering something and second he just he knows stuff and he speaks of it well and i think he's a he's an interesting fellow to talk to and i was very pleased to talk to him and we talked for a while so i will stop talking now introduce the conversation and then i'll talk a little bit more later like i normally do so here is my talk with mr richard starkings You grew up in England. Your name is Richard Starkings. There's a very famous Richard Starkey, who's Ringo Starr, who is older than you, certainly. Because, you know, Ringo Starr is regarded as the least of the Beatles by people who regarded things that way. But was that a thing growing up where, where people were making that connection and giving you static? No, it wasn't, actually. It's been more of a thing in America. Really? Yeah, because um, I am actually as old as the Beatles' first hit. So... My mother did not know there was a Beatle called. And in fact, that name did not become well-known until the Beatles really had split up. He was Ringo Starr. Right. You know, people didn't call him Richard. They didn't, you know, popularize the fact that he was Richard Starkey. So it became much more noticeable. I mean, um, but not a per bad person to be associated no, with. No, not at all. And my brother was a huge Beatles fan. So I grew up loving Beatles music. My other brother loved the Rolling Stones, so I was in a... Were you in the middle? I like the sweet. I was no, no, glamorous. But like, are you in terms of order of no, your brothers? No. Oh, no, I'm the youngest. You're the youngest. I'm the youngest of four children. I have an older sister. Got it. You worked on two comics that are keys to my development as a comic book reader and now comic book creator. They are the Alan Davis, Paul Neary Detective Comics issues and The Killing Joke. Yeah. Because... The Davis Neary stuff is the first time I recognized an artist specifically. I remember looking at his captain, his uh, Brian Braddock in yeah. Excalibur and connecting the dots that he looks a lot like Bruce Wayne. And I was locked in. Like Alan Davis was my guy and I followed him everywhere for a good long time. So it's. I, I actually continue to follow Alan. Oh, Davis yes, absolutely. Because if you follow Alan, um, whatever he's working on, you can make sense of. <laughs> and not every comic creator can make sense of characters the way he does. I loved his recent clandestine team-up annual. And um, when you look at Alan's artwork, you feel the weight of comic book history, but you feel like, like it's carried easily. It's, it's lightly grace. carried. There's a lot grace of grace to it. elegance. Yeah. But there is a... He carries on the tradition of Neil Adams, John Byrne, you know, all the greats. And he does so. It just looks effortless. Yeah. Um, 
So I was very lucky. In actual fact, you mentioned Detective Comics first, but I started working on Killing Joke before Detective Comics. But I finished Killing Joke <laughs> after Detective Comics. And in fact, I only think I did three. But they only did about six. Yeah. 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 It was One a was short, a double size, though, the Sherlock Holmes. It was a short but almost perfect run yeah, and, of a Batman um, comic. I don't know whether I can speak of it, but I do know that Alan quit after... Well, he stopped after the first issue of year, year two. Year one. Year, year two, two, sorry. Yeah. And then and McFarlane took over. And that had to do with redrawing the gun on the cover. Ah. I had to draw a Mauser. And at that point, Frank Miller's shadow was, was long oh. and dark. <laughs> And everything had to conform to the way Frank was drawing it. Even though, of course, Frank changed everything from previous Batman history. Um, I think it's just the nature of editorial to say, this is what works, let's stick with it. Sure. And um, it became difficult for Alan. And, and it's a shame because that first issue was great. My favorite was the Mad Hatter issue because that was my first. And I was very lucky because Alan has always once to be involved in every aspect of comic book production. He, you know, he and Paul Neary and then Mark Farmer worked very hard to make sure that the lines that were put down on the paper were produced. So you know every artist's frustration in the old days when you couldn't scan your own work. Sure. So you know, I knew Mark very well through Mike Collins. I was working at Marvel UK and already in conversations with Alan over Captain Britain, even though I wasn't hands-on on that book, I was... I did the story titles for a lot of Captain Britain issues that Jamie Delano wrote. So Alan was a, was a mentor. He, he is by his nature. He likes to teach you what he's learned. I learned so much in such a short period of time on those three issues because I would go and pick up pages five or six at a time, I think, from Paul. And so they both had a lot of experience between them. Paul is very opinionated. Alan is very opinionated. They gave me a hard time about the placement of one balloon with one word in it. <laughs> but from that conversation, I learned so much. And, you know, I idolized Tom Ozakowski's lettering on X-Men and couldn't understand why Alan wouldn't want Tom lettering his work. And they, they showed me a page from an X-Men annual with a giant balloon and a giant name or uh, exclamation. And Alan just gave me a lecture about how it o overwhelmed the artwork. And that was a really important thing to learn early on because I did like Tom's lettering because it was showy. Right. It, it, he does great title pages. His lettering is, his pen lettering is remarkably consistent. His sound effects are um, interesting to look at. And I was very much drawn to that style of lettering. You know, his Phoenix balloon was to me a revelation that somebody could have a different-looking balloon and contributed to the character, but it wasn't the lettering, it was the balloon. Right. You know, I think that's a careful line you have to consider crossing, making the lettering... A line that was crossed quite a bit in the late 90s. Uh, and a line that I was sometimes forced to cross <laughs> by writers. And sure. I always used to say to writers, as I say to this day, if it doesn't read like a different voice, you can't make it. No, I, I certainly remember when I was at Marvel, every every member of the Fantastic Four had a font. It and was, that was Scott Lobdell's. And it's just um, like... <laughs> you know, he wanted flaming balloons with a torch. I thought it was kind of interesting to do slightly transparent balloons when the invisible woman was invisible. But I drew the line, and I spoke of this. I put this in comic book lettering in the comic craft way. I said that, you know, Scott actually asked for stretchy words for Mr. Fantastic. <laughs> 
And it's good that, that a writer thinks along those lines, like how can we make this more of an immersive experience? And on Steampunk, Chris Cello and Joe Kelly, yeah. I went in that direction at the encouragement of Joe and Chris. It drove me almost insane because every females had a different font, males had a different font, absinthe had a, had a sort of a scrapbook, ransom note way of talking, and you really don't have enough time. And that was that was a, that's a challenging book. I remember trying to read that and having a lot of trouble. My wife described that book as a rich, flowerless chocolate cake with a thick chocolate sauce, chocolate sprinkles, and a side of chocolate ice cream with chocolate wafers. That, you know, each part separately is tasty and sweet, but everything together will make you throw up. And you only have chopsticks to eat it with. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but, you know, having said that, it's a beautifully crafted sure. book. And I think ahead of its time. It's, it's a very dense, I haven't looked at it in a ages. dense read. Joe Kelly is an incredibly talented writer, yes. and I think he was on overdrive. Um, I think Steve Siegel once said to me that the problem with Joe is that he has so many ideas that every page, particularly in Steampunk, has enough ideas for one issue. Right. Probably enough ideas for four different books. And I think he's sort of, he has more of a measured tread when he writes now. Yeah, he's much more, uh, I guess the word would be mature writer. Yes. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to an excited, how about this? How about oh this? no! If you look at M Rex, was that the book? Was M Rex? Yeah. That thing is crazy. Like and you can't. M Rex gave birth to Generator X. Yes. Cartoon series. Yeah. Actually, though, M Rex had Duncan as its filter, and Duncan, you know, he also did a run uh, with another man of action, Joe Casey, and when he was working on, I think, Wildcats, it was that sensibility, a creative. Storyteller like Duncan, who who is up there, I think, with uh, Alan Davis. He's he's an incredibly talented storyteller, and he he filtered a lot of Joe's craziness and made it more dynamic, storytelling easier to assimilate. And the same with Joe Kelly on M Rex, but it's still a layer cake. Yeah, and no one should be, you know, I don't want to dismiss it because there aren't enough ideas in some points, and there were hundreds in those. I just finished reading Marvel, The Untold Story. So did I. I read that book. I just finished what it myself. What a great book. Yeah. What a great book. I recommend it to everybody who wants to know about the history of Marvel. Probably you had the same experience in that, you know, I've been tangentially involved in a lot of those stories from the 80s and 90s, and everything rang true for me from the stories I'd heard from the people I'd spoken to. So it's very well researched, and I think very fair even though some people seem to come out of it better than others, I think it's fair. Yeah. But one thing that was a revelation to me, which I already knew, was that Marvel was limited to eight slots on the newsstand in most of the 60s. In the 60s, yeah. Consequently, ideas were compressed. So something like Fantastic Four, which might have been five titles today, was one. You get a hundred issues of all Jack's best ideas and Stan's best writing. So you have a little bit of Challenges of the Unknown, you have a little bit of Fin Fang Foom, you have the Inhumans, you have the Skrulls, and kind of like uh, Batman and Spider-Man, the Rogues Gallery, boom, everybody's there. Submariner, Doctor Doom, the Skrulls, uh, Mole Man is in the first issue, and I'm rereading Fantastic Four from the beginning, uh, because I'm sure I missed some, and it's just amazing how rich those first six to seven issues Right. 
so rich because all the ideas are condensed, or rather, nothing's wasted. Whereas today, people launch a new title. They, you know, even in creator ownership, um, you know, people will rather launch a new graphic novel, a new miniseries, to have more properties to sell. Yeah. But what made Marvel properties sellable was how condensed and how rich everything was, how colorful. You know? So when they changed the lineup of the Avengers and Hawkeye, Quicksilver, Captain America, and the Scarlet Witch, I remember thinking, hey, what, what, new characters in the same book? Whereas now they would do West Coast Avengers or they right. would do a spin-off, New Avengers, Secret Avengers, you know. So I think um, everybody should be applauded when, when they really try to make a story generous. You are known for lettering. You, you do more than just that. But I want to cover the lettering bases, which is also sort of the, your bio. And then we're going to get more into the comics theory stuff. But we're going to, we're going to touch on it constantly. In the same way that Ringo <laughs> is known as the drummer of the Beatles, but his career after the Beatles yes. is much The all-star band, of the course. The all-star band. And my favorite solo Beatles track is photographed by Ringo Starr, co-written with George Harrison, the two... You know, the quiet one and the drummer. Yeah, yeah. I have had a similar career. So the c comparison with Ringo Starr actually <laughs> started to measure out because, in a way, the letter is like a drummer. Sure. You know, and, and soundtrack. I was about. That's what I wanted to talk to you about. So, you've talked about well, all right, two things. You refer to it as pen lettering, as opposed to hand lettering, because you still use your hands to type. Yes. And make balloons and that sort of thing. So I wanted to just sort of define terms and understand what makes a pen letterer different than a calligrapher. My mom is a calligrapher, so I've seen her work. And and what makes like where where do you draw the distinction? Well, um, I think there is an ocean between comic book pen lettering and calligraphy. I applied that. for a job as a calligrapher once with a uh, greeting card company. This was when I was out of college and uh, before I got the job at Marvel UK. And I spent a day trying to do calligraphy, and I realized I needed to go to a class, but Reading comics for, at that point, 15 years was my education in comic book lettering. It was intuitive. Yeah. Like most people that um, get to work in comics, we've absorbed a lot of the rules, and including, back in the day, exclamation marks at the end of every sentence so that you could actually see that there was a period at the end of the sentence. That's the origin of all those imperative captions. I did not know that. Yeah. It, because of the tendency of a period to vanish, you would put, make an exclamation because you're basically pointing an arrow at the period. And as comic book writing became more refined, people would question that. You know, maybe the, you know, that, that was one thing you learn as a, a lettering artist is to make a bigger period than you would when you just handwrite. Or these days, you know, we don't use them at all when we're texting or I still Facebook do. statuses. I'm you, one of you, those. You still do, but... Yeah. What's out there now is more disruptive to the English language than yeah. comic books were. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, because kids are doing it themselves. Yeah. So um, I really respect calligraphers who understand the nibs, they understand the brushes, they understand broquil, they understand speedball. And they understand, to me, calligraphy is control of, ink, of an ink line. And I don't have any control <laughs> over that. I can fake it. Yeah. You know, and I've used 
Froquil. I've used different speed ball nibs because there was an article by Todd Klein in Comic Scene many, many years ago. It's probably on the internet now, in which he talked about speedball. And I got myself a set. You know, from that, those, you get a roundness, you get the round nibs, and you get a lot of you know, Gaspar, Saladino tricks. You know, there's a lot of letterers that use different speedball nibs to get different display lettering effects. And I think, you know, we're driven in our industry to recreate what we've seen. You know, we want that look. We want to know how all that DC cover, how come DC cover lettering looks different to Marvel cover lettering? And from a British point of view, the reason British lettering looks significantly different to American is we use rotaring German technical pens, which, of course, come to England through the engineering industry, the architecture industry, where you've got basically a flow through a point that's consistent and more consistent than the nibs that they were using in the 60s and 70s for comic book lettering. So I was sort of unique in that I was looking to the American letterers, how do you do that? And I was fortunate to, before I'd finished, no, I'd finished the killing joke. I met Tom Ozakowski, I think, in 88. And he gave me some tips. Um, I, I watched him later. He showed me a lot of his uh, logo work. And, you know, later I got to know Todd, but of course, you know, his, his, his one page. That's Todd Klein, right? Todd Klein, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think, you know, to me, classic Marvel lettering artists are, for me, number one, Artie Semek. Number two, Sam Rosen or Joe Rosen. Uh, both of them uh, have a similar style. Sam was, I think, a better. I prefer Sam to Joe, but Joe had a simplicity that I envied when I started lettering and needing to crank out pages. You can try to be a Tom Wozniakowski at the beginning of your career, and you will fail because he is a machine. You know, he, he has a consistent look up against horrific deadlines on the X-Men, and he didn't do more than one or two books a month, it seemed to me. Probably he did, but a uh, Joe Rosen can do four books a month, five books a month. Probably just attracted to do so. Right. And I think the, I think Todd is a perfect DC comic book letterer. He has the DC look. He, I think he gets his heritage from Gaspar Saladino, Jim Aparo, and a lot of the their names escape me because I'm from Marvel. Marvel. <laughs> That's okay. So, but I think that you know, there's a sort of legacy. Your attention to the to the lettering artists is is remarkable. I mean, granted, it is what it is what you cut your teeth on. Yeah, but it's continue hitting the the Ringo drum. It's the it's the unappreciated. Ben of Oda. All the... Ben Oda was a good DC letter, <laughs> and there's another one that his name will come back to me. There's also Joe Letterese, which I couldn't believe that that's ridiculous. Yeah. Letterese. There were a lot of lettering artists whose name I would notice, and I would compare them, especially in the late 70s and early 80s, to. British lettering artist, because I was looking for the guy that I could actually talk to physically. And that would be Steve Craddock, who lettered most of uh, Alan Davis' Captain Britain. He, he lettered the Alan Moore, Alan Davis' Captain Britain, and, and he had a very clean style that was that softness of uh, Joe Rosen, but the meticulousness of Wozikowski. And I, I got to talk to him once I was at Marvel UK, and I had access to the phone book. And also to Annie uh, Harfacree, who became Annie Parkhouse. She had a very slick style. She used a rotaring 
But ironically, I found out that Steve Craddock and I lived in the same town outside London, Reading. And one of the things that, that both encouraged me and discouraged me was he had a daytime job and wasn't working full time. And I thought he was just the best. He was the best British lettering artist, but he was slow. And Alan was always on deadline, Alan Davis. So he would get the pages. And those are the days of mailing pages. Yeah. You know, at Marvel UK, we rarely used FedEx because it was so expensive and sure. still a very much an American institution. So um, there was another. Ben Oder was sort of analog to um, Bill Nuttall, who worked on Rogue Trooper for 2008. I had got work on Wizard and Chips Holiday Special. I sent in my I sent, oh I sent in samples to I wrote I, I lettered letters to everybody from Deskin who was on Warrior to the editor of Looking which was a weekly um, comic book based on TV shows in the 70s everybody I thought that could give me a job once I was out of college I lettered letters with balloons and captions my address was captioned the date was a caption sure. letter was in the form of word balloons. And uh, I made a logo out of my name. So I, I basic, that's all, I didn't know how to do it. I so I, Bill Nuttall wrote back to me, and he wrote this beautiful letter with examples. I put them in the back of the book. Very kind. He, was, and he said, be an artist. Don't think of yourself as a wrestling artist. And he studied calligraphy. And on his little thing that he sent me, he did some examples of calligraphy. He'd been an artist in the 20s. And he put me in touch with an art editor over at Fleetway. That guy gave me a four-page humor strip. I did a terrible job looking back, but they published it. I got work for looking. I didn't realize I'd have to sit in the office and letter the pages right there and then. I did two hours. He looked at it, said it's too big, start again. Crushed me. But eventually, those samples got to Steve McManus of 2008. He gave me some future shocks, and from that, having applied for a job as an art assistant at Marvel UK, which basically means doing paste-up. Right. Once Ian Rimmer, who was an editor that respected Steve McManus, this is a thing, it's like not what you know, but who you know. Absolutely. Once you've worked with somebody somebody else respects, boom, you got work. Yeah, doors you open. Know, as long as you're persistent and meet your deadline. So the door opened, and you know, to put that in context, you know, I was really glad that I sought out my favorite. And Bill Nuttall had said to me, don't try to ape somebody's style. You know, learn the basics. And he gave me little exercises to do as a pen letterer that really helped me enormously so that by the time I had something of a reputation in the British industry, and that was the beginning of the British brain drain. What did it start with? I, you know, I can never remember because Alan, Alan was doing Batman and the Outsiders. Brian was doing Green Lantern covers, and that had to do with Joe Staten being uh, over for UCAC. Oh, so you're talking about the British artist... Uh, artist invasion, yeah. Okay, not the writers. But it was sort of around the same time, because it was the mid-80s, and you think, who would have made the jump first? You know, Archie Goodwin was coming over to UK, eventually. Karen started coming. So one was from Marvel, Archie, looking for epic projects. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the creators on 2000 AD who had pretty abusive contracts, pretty abusive situations. In, in comics? Those, in the comic business? Are you kidding me? but more abusive than American comics. <laughs> I believe it. So um, John Wagner was very outspoken about not having a piece of 2000 AD or Ghost Dread, as was Pat Mills, who created Nemesis the Warlock. 
and uh, ABC Warriors and had co-created 2000 AD. So they were very, firstly, immensely talented writers and creators because those are the two guys that created the spine of 2000 AD. They created, you know, Wagner created Judge Dredd, Frontium Dog, my favorite 2000 AD character, Robo Hunter, Button Man. I mean, he just created new characters, you know, over breakfast. Pat Mills the same, and and very distinctly different creations. You know, Pat is more sort of esoteric and gets into the culture of each character slain. I love Robusters, which was sort of a humorous script that he did. So he had many strings to his bow. And I, I've been lucky and I got to speak at length to both of them. John is a very sort of avuncular mentor in that he will sort of tease you about what's right and what's wrong. But he's very strong in his opinion. We used to play softball with the 2000 AD guys, which would include John Wagner, Alan Grant. And, and those were the days when they were really frustrated that they didn't own anything. And Alan started a long run on Detective Comics in the late 80s. Yeah. I think he was on the book for 30 years. I think I read probably... Ten of those years. Yeah, yeah. And, and a lot of that stuff was really great. That's Alan Grant. That was Alan. Yeah. John did some issues, but I spoke to him, and I think he, he just didn't feel like he, he could, was a good fit. And I, and I agree, because he's a creator. He creates characters and then determines how those characters behave, where Alan's very good at writing characters other creators have created, such as Strontium Dog. He wrote some of the best Strontium Dog stories, some of the most essential so um, when we went to the pub after softball, they would talk about owning characters, and I approached them both to create a Marvel UK book, which they wouldn't do unless the money was right and the creative rights were right. But we approached them many times, myself and Jenny O'Connor, who was my boss, and now John Wagner's significant other. That's I introduced those two, or rather the situation introduced them. And, you know, John... Eventually, uh, through either refusing to work on Dread or using his considerable stature and influence to make sure that other writers didn't fill his shoes as well as he'd fit his shoes, got Fleetway Magazine's IPC, there was new management, they gave him a piece before the first Judge Dread movie came out. And I, I, I was amazed that, that he, he did that. I was um, full of admiration that he um, stood up for what is right and, and got it in an era where you just can't do that. It's hard to do it now. Hard to do it now. Yeah. Unless you've created it in the first place. Yes. Under different contractual conditions. Yeah, yeah. So those guys, you know, would seem sort of bitter and cynical, but imparted a lot of wisdom when I was working on Marvel books. When you have that sort of contact with, with the generations prior to you? The ones you look up to. The information you get back yeah. from your idols is essential to evolve yeah. industry and, and, and move your head and get you thinking. And I was already thinking along those lines because I love Cerebus. I love Love and Rockets. When I was in my uh, teenage years, those were coming out when I was at college, I think, or just after I got out of college. So it was, you know, they really appealed the idea of doing a black and white book and owning it and bringing down the cost that way by not paying for color printing and so forth when that was a big issue. So I was already 
open to those ideas because there are some great magazines like the Comics Journal, uh, the Comics Reader. In England, we had uh, Richard Burton's Comic Media News. And then we had BEM, uh, which was published by uh, Martin Locke. So there was a lot of information. You, you could get information. That you You're a lot, get. You have a lot of information. You're like an encyclopedia. Well, I've always read it's more incredible. about comics than I've read comics. And I've read a lot of comics. Yeah, no, you have, you are like, I'm, I'm listening. It's just like, I, I honestly don't recognize 60% of the things you're naming. I'm like, this is going to be. Still young, Greg. But you've mentioned the integrity of fonts, and the integrity of lettering. I want to talk about that a little bit, because one of the things I notice, because you mentioned before that there is an intuitiveness as you read comics, you sort of know how to do it. But one thing I notice on amateur comics, the thing that is a dead giveaway are there balloons, the shapes of the balloons, and how they're handling pointers? Or and tails. Tails. And you would think, if you've read enough comics, you know that you can you crop a balloon behind the character so it's not covering up their forehead. Like These little tiny, tiny things that make something look, whether they're using Comic Sans or not, which is a whole separate issue, just the, the, <laughs> the layout and design of a page. It's a non-issue. <laughs> <laughs> we all know. Yes, I know. I just I want to put that off the table so we don't and get into it. And there used to be you know, a funk called Wizbank. Is another yeah. no-no, and uh, he sold a lot of copies of Whizbang. Whizbang was probably more the reason I wanted to do comic book fonts than Comic Sans because Comic Sans is like to me it's like well, obviously that's not a good comic yeah. font <laughs> just because it has the word comic in. But Whizbang clearly took lettering. I, I suspect it's John Costanza. You know, he he created something that looked like somebody fudged. And, and it offended me every time I saw it. And it's, they still offend me, both of them. Whizbang, you don't see so much anymore. But I, I always felt that if I had started lettering now, I would have bought whatever fonts were out there, and I would never have developed my own sensitivity. And in the same manner in which you and I will pick up a Marvel or a DC comic that's clearly illustrated by a younger artist who has not learned storytelling, you know, one of the things that amazed me about Frank Miller when he sort of burst onto the scene with Daredevil, all the storytelling was there. Some people had beaten him into submission, but he'd already learned it himself. You know, and if you look at his APA work, you know, his old comic strips that he did for an amateur press alliance, APA, it's Sin City in raw form. Daredevil is Sin City polished by editorial, working with another writer, Roger McKenzie, working under Shooter's regime. Right. Um, and I think you can learn an awful lot from Jim Shooter. I think he knew the basics and wanted to apply them. But Miller applied them in such a fluid, easy way. That's a comic. That cemented, you know, I think I was about 18, and it really cemented my love of comics. I was like, wow, this comic just picks me up and drags me along, throws me down off a building and picks me up and beats me up again. And I remember the first issue of Frank Miller's Daredevil said, you know, this is a sensational artist. And, and never true. But it was true. It was true. He was just amazing. And at the same time, we had John Byrne on Fantastic Four after his fantastic run on the X-Men. Yeah. And, and John Byrne's storytelling just makes it look so easy. It, you know, he does tiny figures and giant environments, yeah. establishing shots that show you all the information. These guys had distilled comic storytelling. 
This is why I love Alan Davis today, is because he's still telling a story with all the information available. Full figures, establishing shots, Classic. you name it. Classic. So, I see comics today where it's like, this guy doesn't tell a story to me. And he's a great artist. There's a lot of great art out there. There's a lot of what I call photo ref art. So, yeah, there's beautiful illustration in comics. Yeah, or um, Cintiq photo art, where they've traced a photograph yeah. on the Cintiq, and, and their style comes through, but it's stiff. It's not fluid. It's um, not cartooning. It's not cartooning. It is very close to the sort of Humetti yeah. photo strip. So, to me, with lettering, it's the same, the same truth applies. People are buying fonts. Um, lettering their comic books, and they're not thinking storytelling. And they're not thinking, how does... As I started doing digital lettering, comics with the computer, I would look at the artwork the same way I look at it as if I'm going to put a pen on the board. What is the line width? What is the line weight? Is this guy using a brush or a pen? Is there room for the lettering? You know, how can I serve the story? And I think this is question that not many lettering artists today, they don't carry that weight of understanding and they can learn it but they need to study just the way I studied I studied all those interviews, I studied how Klein had to say, I studied I had a folder for the longest time because there weren't any books on lettering Every, everything I could possibly find, print out from the internet on our, we have a resource called Balloon Tales where on some forum I collated conversation between a lot of great comic book creators, including Kurt Music novels, and we had a whole conversation about thought balloons, because they sort of disappeared Yeah. Frank Miller made the caption. Frank and Alan Moore made the caption very popular, the internal narrative. And we had a whole conversation about thought balloons, and, and people need to read that stuff, they need to track it down, and it is there. There's much more information now. Ironically, there's too much information, people can't find the stuff that will inform their work. But even today, you know, J.G. Rochelle, who, who designs most of the fonts now in our library, you know, we, we sort of, we have a font called Zoinks, which is based on sort of my hand display lettering. And our goal was to eliminate the Ren and Stimpy font from toy stores across America. Because the Ren and Stimpy font got out there somehow, probably as a free download or a bit current, whatever. Yeah, I have it. <laughs> everybody has it, and everybody was using it, and everybody was using WizBank. So our mission became, let's provide healthy alternatives. Zoinks is better. I will say that for the Thank record. Thank you. Um, and it's like crazy for me to see it on, uh, I saw it on a billboard, Drop Dead Gorgeous is a movie that the DVD has Zoinks font, there's candy bars. There are logos that clearly have tweaked Zoinks, and, and I have this immediate connection to it because we've penetrated pop culture. It's a great feeling. But then you get frustrated that people don't move beyond that. You know, we have a library of over 200 font families now, and, I, and the reason for doing that is to provide palettes. And I often say to lettering artists that I train, each book should have a palette, and limit it to three to five fonts. There's going to be occasions when you need a computer font or something else that the story requires. But just because you have 100 fonts doesn't mean you have to use them. If you look at all the title pages of the first dozen Fantastic Fours, it's the Journey into Mystery logo as story titles. We did a font loosely based on that called uh, Monster Mash. Um, and, and in fact, the first dozen issues of Fantastic Four is a Monster Mash. But it was, I think it was Artie Simic 
you know, the, the frayed edges on the left. Yeah. And we've done fonts with a Silver Age feel, a DC feel. We've got a font called Speeding Bullet. We've got um, many fonts that seek to capture that look. And of course, you know, when you're making a whole alphabet, the letters you require in an alphabet control the look of certain fonts because you have to have a theme, and that will create a new identity for that look too. So the great thing about extrapolating five letters from a sound effect into a font is that other factors will affect the look of it and create a unique look. I encourage anybody that does combat lessons to make their own font. No, and there are way more now than there were 10, 15 years ago. There are a lot of lesson marks out there doing that. But there are also a lot of people who get you know, the, the thing now is this house style, which we used to determine the house style. And we were asked, I think, by the Spider-Man office, I can't remember the editors, Eric, one was Eric Fine. And the story started to cross over, so they wanted to ask us to keep the same font on all books so that when trade paperbacks were printed, they had the same look. So it's a good intention. Sadly, just because you've got four books that have Spider-Man in them doesn't mean they'll look the same artistically. So, and I think it's a mistake sometimes to let lettering control the look of the artwork, which it does to a certain extent. You know, if, if somebody has a fine line weight, I'm going to letter it differently than someone with a heavier line weight. So it pr provides a sort of conveyor belt house style, which I sought to implement when we were doing a lot of the X-Men books, and then I realized completely the wrong thing to do. But that's because I was allowed the trial and error. A lot of lettering artists now aren't allowed trial and error. They have to do things a certain way, and that creates a uniform look. But if you're doing your own artwork, those are the questions you need to ask, which is, how do these things work with the artwork? If you've got a certain balloon shape, if you, have you made a decision about whether you're going to lock balloons to panel boards? Are they going to float? I have a rule that the tail points towards the mouth, unless it's a close-up on the eye, in which it's pointing to the center of the eye, the tail itself points to the center of a balloon. It doesn't hang off the edge. There's lots of little thought processes that are about consistency, but it doesn't matter what style you use. Right. So I have, I have a rule also that because the tail opens near the mouth and becomes larger towards the balloon, when you join two balloons together, as it, as it gets closer to the mouth, it closes and opens up. Other letters do it the other way around. Right. It's crazy. Because is it consistent? Are you actually applying storytelling thought processes, which is how do you move the eye across a panel? How do you move an eye across the page? Alan Davis talked to, me, talked to me a lot about that kind of stuff in regards to balloon placement. So I've worked with Alan, you know, Bill Nuttall, gave me a lot of direction, an editor on 2000 AD, assistant editor who was only there a couple of years, Simon Geller. He gave me a lot of feedback, which I hated at first. He gave me a typewritten page of notes I have probably have somewhere and I was like what does he know but he taught me a lot of important things you know when we talk about balloon placement the first thing we mean is where an editor or writer has indicated balloon placement yeah. and I know one writer who must do it at high speed circle 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 throwing the pages aside as he does it hoping that the lettering artist will use that as a rough idea and um I'm going to mention his name. 
Howard Mackey. All right. Howard Mackey. Bless you, Howard. Because he actually um, came up to me at San Diego 20, 20 years ago and said I was his favorite letterer. And I, I thought to myself, I know why. Because I fixed your placement. And he was working with John Romita Jr. on a Spider-Man book, I believe. And John draws big. Yeah. And there's room for balloons. But, boy, there's a lot of copy. You're working hard. So I don't mind. In fact, as, a, as an artist, it's just like a colorist. Colorists like a lot of open art because it gives them more room to express the colors and you know, work with um, sets and so forth. With a writer who isn't too fussy about balloon placement, you have, you have to be skilled. Whereas with a writer that's very controlling about balloon placement, you've got to be skilled, but you're being told what to do. And you're having a sometimes... Uh, Kurt Music is someone that I have a, I've had a lot of debates about placement with. But Kurt is completely reasonable. Not every writer is reasonable. Some writers just want what they want and you know, do it. Kurt will defer. And sometimes yeah. he'll, he'll insist, but there's a conversation there, as there should be in any creative collaboration. Sure. And Marvel and DC Comics in particular are collaborative. But with Howard, I, re I would enjoy working on it because it was difficult, and because I would learn about my own capacity. And working with someone like John Rick Jr., where in my favorite run that we worked on was uh, Thor. That was, that's right. when I was there. Gorgeous. Yeah, that and book the coloring, was... And Greg? It was. Greg Wright. Gorgeous. Except for the separations which yeah. were done with Malibu, overseas. Oh, no, this was Ireland. Oh, that was when... Um, yeah. I always forget their name. Yeah. Graphic Color Works? Graphic, Graphic Color, Color Works. Works, yeah. Oof. Sometimes came to it me. didn't work. But, <laughs> you know, what I enjoyed about... Firstly, there was a richness to Thor because... Somehow, John Romita Jr. was just like... Well, he's channeling, channeling Jack Kirby. Kirby, yeah. And um, the color was right. What Dan was writing um, harked back to what Walt did. And um, I love that run. Yeah, I, and, I, and I had a new respect for John Romita Jr. because I remember his run on Iron Man and Spider-Man where he was still finding his way. But and Klaus somehow, Jansen was inking it, so it looked oh, yeah. stupendous. Everything, that was all cylinders. That was an all-cylinders book. Yeah. And a great team that was put together. That's a great example. And an incredible assistant editor. Uh, I, I heard things about him. <laughs> I'm not so sure. Uh, I think he was the spanner in the work. Yeah, probably. Yeah, but, um, you know, putting together a team like that is, is great proof of the importance of collaborative process. Yeah. But it was difficult sometimes to letter J.R. Jr. because he, he was working Marvel style from the plot. Um, I'm not sure. Did Dan yeah. do full script? Plot? No, he was doing plots. I mean, he would write a page was maybe... Three paragraphs? Right. Maybe. So there was a lot of the rhythm dictated by... Yeah, John was telling that story. And that means that the writer's coming in and trying to tell his story around it, and that is harder for lettering artists. Whereas Jim Lee, you look at Jim's work and you think, there's not room for lettering. Always is. Jim knows where the lettering can go. And I worked with him on Batman Hush. Jeff Lowe wrote fairly tight script. He would adapt it later. And Jeff can write a lot, too. But it was very rare that I couldn't find the right place to lean with Jim. And that, again, you get new respect. Because you think it's going to be a problem, then you're like, it's not a problem, which means that the artist is thinking at many, many levels. And I think Jim has probably learned that through trial and error because, you know, when he started on Punish All His Own and then X-Men, you know, Chris used to write a lot of dialogue. Sure. Probably learned to get out of the way and not waste time drawing.
there's no question that you were instrumental, if not the driving force of revolutionizing comic book lettering from analog to digital. The line you used to explain it is, you, you'd seen John Byrne was digitally lettering his work, and you said, if I'm going to be put out of a job, I'll put myself out of the job. Yeah. And I know that there's a story to having to convince Marvel and then later DC to switch over, but my question is actually, prior to that, you've mentioned all these letters, Tom Orzakowski, Todd Klein, uh, I wrote some other Steve Craddock, Ben Oda. But there's all these guys who are doing hand lettering, or pen lettering. John Workman, Jim Novak, these are guys I worked with. Sansa. Was there any blowback from your peers yeah. saying, Richard, what do you stop this? Yeah. And how does how yeah. does that yeah <laughs> it was it was it was sort of a double edged sword in a way because I you know, when I started working in the US, I did a few firstly I became friends with Greg Wright. Um, and ironically, as we discovered last year, yes, you live in the building I used to live in yes. when I slept on Greg Wright's sofa. We are connected in many ways, It's Richard. very strange. <laughs> that was a bizarre experience. But Greg was really receptive to me. Tom DeFalco assigned Bobby Chase and Greg Wright to look after me when I was sent out to New York uh, when we were doing Dragon's Claws. And Robert Sutherland, the managing director of Marvel UK, wanted me to get feedback from Tom Grunwald, Ralph Macchio. And Greg had just, I think, been promoted and now was editor of Avenger Spotlight. And once, you know, I developed a relationship with Greg, he started sending me Spotlight stories. It, it, I want to say that one of them was an Alan Davis one, but I'm not sure. At first, his idea was, I've got guys working in the UK. You could letter that stuff. We don't have to put it back and forth. Every editor... Number one, how do I save time? Yeah. Right? Especially in those days, the FedEx thing and, and, and mail and transatlantic. The deadline is the thing. And that's, that's probably... That's what Al Williamson taught me. Yeah. Hit your deadline. Absolutely. That's the, where the rule. That's yeah. the rule. Yeah. So that was the, you know, and, and uh, Greg had a lot of respect for Alan and Paul Neary and, and other creators, but anyone that could stand up to Greg, Greg would respect. <laughs> Because you want to know that your guys know the stuff, and you don't want to be teaching people all the time. So meeting a deadline is good. Telling a story is good. I was then, I think Killing Joke had come out, and was respect. It, it, people forget that not a lot of people talked about Killing Joke at the time, except professionally. Everybody respected and admired it professionally. I remember that book, this quick aside. I had sort of faded from comics a bit because my older brother was the one that would drive me to the comic store. He was and he went to college. He's five years older than me. So there was a spell where I wasn't getting to the comic store. And I saw a newspaper article about The Killing Joke because it was a mature Batman comic and there were curse words in it. And I was 12, I guess, was it? That was 87, right? Thereabouts? 87, 88? Yeah, 87 is when it came out. I started yeah. working on it in 85. So I was 12 and I thought, Batman comic with cursing, I want it. But was there cursing in it? There was one curse word. So I had my mom drive me to the store. I bought that one comic. And I, I certainly didn't understand like the ending and the whole, the whole psychological thing of it. It was so gorgeous and so cool that I was back. I mean, I, that brought me back in such a and strong way. And originally there was nudity in it. Well, you see, you see Commissioner Gordon's bare uh, buttocks. Uh, you saw, uh, I saw, <laughs> Brian and I saw... Bosoms? And at the time, bosoms. And when, I think when I 
selected that page. It was uncensored by Brian. But Brian, when he gave me the page, was really anxious about the violence and the line between sadistic torture and sadistic rape. So he made the call and we drew it. And I don't think that's been published. And, and I, I don't think it should because I think that's part of an artist's process to self-edit self sure. and to cross the line and then come back. And I think it was a challenging script and it's the early days of Alan Moore's career because he wrote that. I know that he wrote it I think between the Rorschach issue of Watchmen and the one that followed it, and if you put Killing Joke between those two issues, you can see the rhythm of Alan's writing is very similar. A lot of huddles, yes. reflections, um, cross-fade scenes. Not that there was a fade, but you know, yeah, characters yeah. in the same position. The comic book equivalent. Yeah, and uh, Alan was very heavily into Watchmen when Brian got the go-ahead and needed the script. And, I, and my recollection is that Alan said that he stopped Watchmen and got onto Killing Joke. And I believe, because I had this conversation with him, that he wishes he'd been able to pay more attention to it, but that it needed to be done. So um, it was sort of the work of Brian's life. And I became his collaborator because I was the one that saw him the most, bugged him the most, because I wanted to see pages. <laughs> and um, he even said once, very generously, that it was our graphic novel. Overly generous. But I, I used to have many of the pages in my uh, house at the nice. time, and I wish I'd scanned the pencils. I, not scanned them, but taken photographs right, right, right. in the repro room. Uh, if I'd known what, it would, what, would you what know? the value of that was yeah. at the time, because I used to, you know, he'd done the, book, the first nine pages for the DC graphic novel line format, and then he had to change to the then popular bookshelf format. Bookshelf format. I was going to say Baxter, but that's in between. Yeah, the well, Baxter bookshelf. was the paper. Right? Baxter was the paper. Right. But it was also that... Bookshelf was the square bound. Yeah, yeah. But, the, yeah. but a lot of the Baxter books were thicker, like the Warlock reprints and so forth. Okay, sure. Um, and it was that nice Yeah, the Kree scroll War reprints. Everything looked yeah. so bright. So, um, yeah, it became bookshelf. Brian had to extend the art. He had to stack the first nine pages, draw up the art, and then he'd inked maybe another four, five, six pages. I was doing patch paper, lettering on patch paper, which is crack and peel, sticking the lettering on, and he got those pages back and he said, you covered up the merry-go-round. <laughs> okay, well, why don't you letter on pencils? Which I, me was like, <laughs> I'm going to have to... Cause the other thing is, Brian was my favorite artist. I had been asked by a writer, James Hill, who still works in comics as an editor. We were in the corridor at Marvel UK, and he said to me, what would be your dream project? And I said, easy. Grip by Alan Moore, art by Brian Bond. It'll never happen. So when it happened, when it was announced, I was like, this is never going to happen again. <laughs> I have to pitch. Yeah. This. Ended up at a signing at a Birmingham comic art show in 84, 85. No, it must have been even 86 when Brian had started. And I was sitting next to Brian and I said, who's coloring it? You know, who's, you know, who's the editor? Who's lettering it? Yeah. And he turned to me and said, would you like to letter it? I was like, I'll see if I'm available. Did um, you really do that? You did just say, I'd, I'd love to. Uh, I did. Sir. Okay. He said, would you like to letter it? Which to me was like, no, it's the other way around. 
I would like to let her, please yeah. allow me. Yeah, yeah. And he asked Denny O'Neill if it was possible. Luckily, I had lettered Halo Jones. I was going to say that I'd been lettering Detective Comics, but that's not true. Halo Jones was Alan Moore. So I, I had that foot in the door that I'd already worked on 2000 with Alan. And I think Denny was the editor at that point, and then Karen was the editor later on when it came out two years later, because Karen then became assigned. I want to get us back to your peers and you putting yourself out of business, but how that re reacts to your peers who were also doing pen lettering at the time. Well, it's funny because what comes to mind is a scene in Blazing Saddles okay. where he holds a gun to his own head, <laughs> right? Yeah. And let me go, you know, or I'll kill him. Uh, I won't use the exact dialogue. But um, I, I did that. feel like that. I did feel like if I don't take myself behind the shed and shoot myself in the head, Somebody else will, and then I'm dealing with a new world order, and it was scary. You know, a, a lot of people sort of point to the rise of comic up in the 90s, like we were an evil empire, and, and there was part of that. Um, there was part of, do as much as we can now, because it won't last. I, I felt that kind of imperative, and I was way ahead of the curve. I had assistants. Studio in a studio, the learning curve is faster. Whereas I was getting calls, you know, Chris Eliopoulos would call me and say, "How do you do thought balloons on a computer?" And I would take the time and, and teach him. And Chris and Todd were the ones who saw what I saw on the wall and and realized, "Oh yeah, that's the way it's going to go." They were the fastest. Other letters called me. One one guy called me and said, "What are you doing? Drying up all the work?" We, at one point, we, we had to finish series that Jim Novak, we had to make a Novak font with his permission. We didn't even ask, the editor did. That was the Steve Rude series that Joe Casey wrote and Jim Novak lettered it. X-Men, Children of the Atom? Yeah. Great series. It's sad. Rivik ended it, I think. But um, they wanted a consistent look. We got permission. We made a Novocaine font. And Jim was one of those guys I thought was classic Marvel letterer. He, he had a great I worked with look. Jim a lot. I yeah. liked him. Yeah, he's, he's a yeah, sweet he, guy. All the other guys looked up to him. Bill Oakley, who was a very good letterer, uh, looked up to Jim and was probably trained by Jim. Jade Mode was, was of the Novak School, if you want to call it the Novak School. It was the house style of the 80s. Mike Heisler also lettered a lot like Novak. Kenny Lopez. Yeah. Kenny Lopez. Uh, Lopezatron. Lopezatron, is that what they call him? I think that, no, I think that was his font. Oh, really? Yeah. And there was also Steve, you got me. one of the Cubit School guys, Steve, I'll remember his name later. Anyway, there was a look, and I think when I, when I started working for Greg, my look was like nobody else's and nobody felt threatened. That was, that was an interesting thing. Nobody thought, oh, that guy's, they thought, well, that guy's stuff is weird. <laughs> Doesn't look like our lettering at all. So what, when you're training some people to letter a certain way, there are rules and observations that they look at your work and don't value your work because it doesn't obey the same rules. And I'm working with rotaring pens. Right. Had to, it was more, I guess, mechanical and, and consistent I, of line? Uh, cleaner, I think. Yeah. I, I, and I'm not saying that the, the Novak look was dirty, but it had a thick thin. I feel like my memory of, of those comics, because I haven't looked at them recently, is that your, your, lettering might have been, your letters might have been more square than rectangular. I, I can tell you something. I was slower. 
Okay. And Novak was fast. He was fast. And Novak trained fast letterers. And when you're working fast, one of the things that drove me mad, I hated the vellum days of lettering. Because the ink doesn't soak into the page the same way that it does when you letter on the board. Because a lot of the marble boards of the 80s in particular either had a tooth, and it, and it, it, it seemed to just inhale your ink. <laughs> so you had to use a thicker point to get the line to be thick. But vellum doesn't do that. Vellum is a glossy surface. And yeah, vellum, for those who don't know, it's a, like a tracing paper overlay. But it's designed for ink. But, it, but the ink just sits yeah, there. Yeah, it just rests on top. And sometimes it gets smudged. And sometimes it would be photographed before it was pasted up. And it would start to get thick. And the letters would touch. And there was a lot of lettering in the 80s. whose speed or vellum overlays looked like the letters touched each other. The beauty of digital lettering is that that never need happen. Right. So I felt in, in 89 when I did a lot of work out of Greg's apartment in your building that I was sort of unnoticed. I was doing Deathlock. I was doing little jobs for Don Daly, Punisher, and Conan, and here and there. Um, and I didn't feel confident, partly because Greg was my only source of work, and Don, but I didn't feel I was working on any books that mattered. And perhaps that's why I was able to do my best work, because nobody was noticing. In fact, Orzakowski did the first four issues, five issues of Sleepwalker, and gave up. And that was because Buddy Hansky, quite rightly, wanted a good letterer on beautiful Brett Blevins' art. Sure. Brett is a totally incredible giant in our industry. So when I moved to California from New York, I lived in New York seven months, picked up enough work, moved out to California, and I had things like World Without End, which I was doing on vellum, driving me mad because there were special balloons, there was special language. And I have to cop to this. I was listening to Anthony Robbins' personal power tape. Okay. My girlfriend at the time had a set of these uh, tapes, and I was living with roommates in Venice Beach, and I didn't have a uh, green card. I had a work permit because I was a computer designer. Two, three days a week, doing t-shirt designs and uh, putting the numbers in limited edition books, <laughs> numbering numbering plates. You know. sure. I, I've done everything. I'm, and I got to work on The Electric Lives Again. I actually cleaned up the lettering for the cover of that, which was originally designed by Steve Miller, Frank's brother. And I, I did a clean version of his Greek-style lettering. So I was in this apartment in Venice Beach thinking, am I going to make a living? You know, one book a month. I think I had Sleepwalker and World Without End. And so I was listening to these Anthony Robbins tapes where he'd say, don't think you have to do more of what you're already doing in order to make more money. You have to do work the same amount of hours and make more money. And I, and I remember I was lettering World Without End, and I would shout at the tape, it's not possible. I have to do more pages to make more money. It's not possible. But what I, what I enjoyed about those Anthony Robbins tapes, which are really sort of his, his, his demographic of salespeople. But what I got out of it was a different way of thinking, which is, how can I do what I'm doing, still enjoy it, improve my working circumstances? Because I used to cycle to FedEx 
when I lived in El Segundo by the airport, I used to fight all the I used to put a FedEx box. Remember the days when we had FedEx trays inside the box? Sure. So they were bigger boxes. In my backpack, cycle down to FedEx drop off to save money on gas. I mean, that's, you know, everybody's been through that, what, how they save money. And those were the days when gas was a dollar a gallon. <laughs> Don't even get me started. So I was looking for ways I could raise the quality of my work. I, I, I developed a new respect for the Novak look, which is the, mm-hmm. looks good. The moment you're tilting your lettering slightly, speed. Uh, it's very difficult to maintain a Tom Wozniakowski look or Tom Frame was one of my favorite British letterers. He did the Judge Dredd uh, script for many, many years before he passed away. So I was like, well, I don't want to hack it out. I don't want to do that. But a key moment for me came when the image explosion happened. This was 91, 92. Yeah. And all the top lettering artists were being offered double page rates to go and work at Image, including Tom. So he was lettering Born, Chris was lettering Dragon. Yep. Mike Heisler, I think, got hired by Jim and Mark to work in the Wildstorm Studios. I don't know whether they're calling themselves Homage Studios or Wildstorm. Then. It was Homage before it was Wildstorm because Homage was Wills and Jim together as okay. studio mates. And then, but then Jim and Mark Silvestri moved out here and their, their offices, studios were shared originally when he was doing Cyberforce and yeah. Jim was doing Wildcat. So what happened then was Marvel, Bob Harris in particular, I was already picking up work. I was already starting to do digital lettering, but not really making a crack. You know, I was working for Rob Tokar on Marvel Superheroes, 12-page stories. We lettered a strip. Gary Erskine did a Wolverine Punisher miniseries, which Greg edited, and I misjudged. So I was starting to experiment with digital lettering with this idea that it would make me faster. And I was making my own font and trying to make it better, which is a mistake. You've got to capture your personality and the personality of other lettering artists. So cut that long story short, the door was open. And suddenly, I was pen lettering an issue of Uncanny X-Men. I think it was 286. John Byrne scripts, Jim artwork, and I couldn't do it fast enough and my brother was in town. And Bob, quite rightly, took six pages away from me and had them lettered in New York. And, and that really sort of, that was like the dream book. You know, if, really it was sort of, well, if I letter Uncanny X-Men, then I'm as good as my favorite letter. That, that's what goes through your mind. Yeah, yeah. That was the premier book. So I lost it. So yeah. I had the opportunity and lost it. And I, and I was sort of kicking myself. And I was like, well, I have to make digital lettering work. And I don't know if I'd hired JG. I don't think I had. JG at the time, but within a year, I was working with someone coming in two, three days a week, and ultimately, and ironically, Jim needed an issue of Wildcat turned around overnight, issue seven of Wildcat. Mike Heisler was working as an editor and a lettering artist, couldn't do it, so it was given to us, and Mike said, this is not a regular gig, we just need it overnight tonight. Well, guess what? They needed it overnight for two years. (laughs) And that opened the, sort of kicked open the door. I was going on honeymoon later that year, I believe, and uh, had to finish Gambit, Howard Mackey, Lee Weeks' Gambit. Yep. And uh, this is the trick that I had to use then. Bob Harris had said, don't ever letter any X-Men books digitally. Never. 
because I snuck two pages of X Factor at Kelly Crevasi. And Kelly was happy to have the pages. Sure. But Bob said, don't let him do this again. And he actually called me and said that directly. So I knew I was going to be away when the last six pages of Gambit came in. So I had JG, uh, who was working for me, I think full-time at that point, letter the page on vellum digitally. I printed it out on vellum. Taped two pages together. I put a sheet of vellum over the digital lettering and placed it in pencil. And that was how I convinced Bob that digital lettering would look exactly like my lettering because I sent the two pages in and said, can you tell them apart? But no, he's letter, computer away, I think. He's <laughs> and that was a turning point because within two years, we were let, one month we lettered 17 individual X-Men books, I think titles, in one month. So we went from never letter X-Men books digitally to letter them all digitally. And when I was there as an assistant, you had to actually get, because pen lettering cost more, because you guys had worked out a contract with Marvel, I believe. No, that, I, no, was it my, I was getting my rate. Okay, I was, the, I, I was in the understanding that there was a, a contract negotiated with Comic Craft. Never had a contract. Oh, that's look at that. I just learned something. I but, don't sign contracts. <laughs> I'm not good at signing contracts because I'd rather be on a book because I'm good. And maybe this is the mistake I made, but I always feel you're you're only as good as your last job anyway. And I I just I was just very cautious about petitioning for a contract, which might mean lowering my rate across the board, which is, of course, the way it's done now. Yeah. You know... Virtual, well, you get less, paid less, but it's a guaranteed certain amount of work. I think yeah. that's the understanding that virtual calligraphy have. You have to talk to Chris about that. I was under the impression that that was the case, because, because the pen lettering guys... It more at the time, because they would have had to paste it up. Well, just the, the pen lettering guys who were doing over vellum. So John Workman would work over vellum, and oh, Jim Novak. we got Novak. more for vellum. We got an extra... That's what it was. So they were. They, it cost more. So to get Jim Novak yeah. to letter something, we'd have to get extra permission. It was to do cheaper it. on the boards because also back then you paid the Inca more if there was no lettering. Well, at this point, nobody was lettering on the boards. It was not happening. Just too late. They just Everything yeah, because it was it was vellum over photocopies on pencils. Yes. That's how it would happen. <laughs> and then we'd put them together digitally. I can't remember the last time I put a pen on a Marvel board. I really can't remember. <laughs> I, I really can't, and and I, you know, I'm sure I did well into the 90s, but probably not at all past 98, 99. Getting to that point in the late 90s into the 2000s, at a certain point you're selling your fonts, so people can now use your fonts. And and I'll tell you the exact thought process. I mean, I I, I sort of congratulate myself in retrospect because I I saw everything. The moment John Byrne created he created a font in I think. Fantastic was his program that he used. And used Fantographer. Fantographer right. and now Font Studio because Fantographer they didn't update. JG worked. I, I, I can be honest, I, I really don't know how to use those programs anymore <laughs> because JG, that's his expertise. Right. And, and he was a graphic design student and wanted to create fonts. And I, I had that intention of building a font library because, the th you know, I'm, I met John Byrne in a lobby in the Westgate Hotel, I would say, 90 or 91. And I went up to him and said, I see that you're lettering Namor or um, another book. Was it one of his Dark Horse books, Danger no, Unlimited? No, or Next no, 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 that was a lot later. You were doing Namor and another... I remember Namor. Another Marvel book. And, and I said, I see you're using a computer font. And at first he'd done one, he'd created one based on Heisel lettering, and then Heisel said, hey, what's up with that? Then he created a more generic one, which I think was pretty slick. 
had a little bit of Novak to it, had a bit of an angle to it. And he was doing some cool caption shapes, and, and I was thinking, this is going to catch on. It's, it's not, if it's John Byrne, it's going to be everyone. Uh, which is not true, because John, he'd pen-lettered an issue of Fantastic Four. And it didn't look great, but he was prepared to do everything. So the moment I was figured, artists will do it, other letters will do it, people sell fonts. I just, the, the, I, I saw to the end of the tunnel immediately. But was the end of the tunnel, say, 2004? Because when I was at Marvel, Comicraft was 15 people. It was this huge army. You know, the most I had was 17, yeah. You know, we'd call, and, and I used to just listen to the, the directory, because you would narrate yeah. it. And, you know, you were it was Chief Tiger or whatever. First Tiger. Yeah. Calvin Hobbes reference. So you'd go through, and you'd, just, you'd hear all these great names, because you had, they had great names. And you just wait for your, and you'd hit the button. Even though I knew which <laughs> button to hit. You'd... Yeah, we had a phone system. That was expensive, too. Everything... About running a studio's expense. But That's now, Comicraft is four people? Yes. So, is that part of the... Like, at a certain point when you start selling your fonts, and, and Marvel, when I was at the end of my time at Marvel, we started building an in-house lettering program. I knew that in-house lettering was a possibility. I also knew that it was a liability, because I'd already done it. So, firstly, I didn't want to be a guy running a studio. But the model for me was... Studios, Hergé. One of the things on the Anthony Robbins tapes was find a role model, you know, which we all do subconsciously. Or consciously. Or consciously. (laughs) John Wagner had been a role model for me. Alan Davis had been a role model for me. Some people um, enjoy mentoring, even though they don't call it mentoring. They just do it. Alan is one of those. He will teach you. You'll have a half-hour conversation with him, and you'll learn something whether you want to or not. He, He thinks a lot about what he does, and that's why I think... He's one of those, it's sort of seamless, his, his intellectual approach and his emotional, physical approach are very well balanced. He's not just intellectual, but doesn't draw great. He's, you know, he's, both processes are on the spot. Wagner sort of teaches you by his attitude. People in editorial I've worked with did it because it was their job to teach you. Mark Grunwald is a great teacher. You know, I don't think he was always a great writer. I think he was a very good writer in some of his stuff, like Project Pegasus, uh, the Thing story from yeah. Marvel 2 and 1, was a revelation to me. Just, you know, the idea that you could have a six-part team-up and have a, a, a story arc was a, was a revelation in those days. It's interesting when they do trade paperback collections that they have to go and look for things like that because they didn't fit the trade paperback format before then. So I was reading the story of the creator of Tintin. And I saw that he, in order to publish his own comic book, created an advertising studio that did logos, illustrations. So he had everybody. So he had a team that could create Tintin albums or advertise it. He was like, he the, he was like the Belgian Will Eisner. He was. He was. But this idea that you could have a studio and, and generate a source of income Finance something else was very appealing to me because I never thought of myself as a lettering artist. I thought of myself as someone that wanted to work in comics, and lettering was a way in. Editorial was something I enjoyed immensely. You know, at the end of my time at Marvel, I put out three American format comic books Dragon's Claws, Death's Head, and Sleeper. And that was sort of me, the pinnacle of like, wow, I'm. Something in the American format. I never wanted to work 
I never wanted to write Spider-Man or edit Spider-Man or, you know, I, I, I really did come from that mindset of create something. Cerebus, Love and Rockets, Judge Dredd. So we did some grim and gritty comics like Death's Head and Dragon's Claws, and Archie Goodwin gave us permission to do an epic UK book, which was Lee's Brothers. And that helped me understand. I, I looked at the contract for martial law. Kevin O'Neill, I think, or Pat Mills gave me a copy of that contract so that I could model a UK contract. And all those 2080 creators at the time were like, we need to create a contract. So the idea that an editor at Marvel UK wanted to set a precedent for a creator-owned imprint was very appealing. It didn't go anywhere after that. Because you have to have someone like Archie or Karen Berge or Scott Dumbio is a good example. Someone who really cares about the industry and wants to create new opportunities and formats and engage people that you respect. And the only way you can do that is give them a contract they respect. You know, that's the key to working with people who've been around a long time. So, um, what's the question? <laughs> While you had Comicraft, you also created, or maybe it had existed before, Active Images, which was your publishing imprint, which was you. That was a decision I made when uh, Marvel started making noises about buying Comicraft, right ah. after they bought Malibu. Okay. So when I was considering Marvel in its juggernaut my, years, yeah, in its, and again, you know, when I read Marvel: The Untold Stories, I I could see how that offer fit into the acquire, 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 yeah, Spear, Skybox. They were buying companies. Yeah. This is an asset. And Malibu was not an asset, other than the fact that they had some properties that eventually Marvel just killed. Yeah. You know. Well, the story there is they wanted the coloring team. Yeah, but, but I also think yeah. they wanted to cut, kill... Competition. Competition. Yeah. That, that was the mindset of the people that were behind the wheel at the time. I think people in Marvel will say it was for the coloring. Yes. But and, people watching from the outside. But well, I wasn't publishing. So I wasn't as attractive, and thank goodness. Yeah. Um, but I did have to think, what does that mean? Would I have to work for them for certain But you were part of, of the pipeline. I mean, in the yeah, same way that they bought a distributor. It's... Graphic Color Works was trying to compete with us. They were trying to, they actually created a font based on, they captured letters from something we'd lettered. <laughs> and luckily, someone on the inside, bless him, gave us the heads up, and we were able to spend a cease and desist. But, you know, what I saw happening very early on from that John Byrne moment to other letters want to do what we're doing, I knew that I had to make sure that any work we got, we turned around on the spot. That meant hiring people until we reached capacity. Well, of course, when you do that, you have more capacity. So Fabian went to work for Acclaim, yeah. enjoyed working with Comic Craft, and said, what do we do to get you to let all our books? So... I had Dave Lamphere working for me at the time, and he had a team dedicated to lettering the acclaim books. And I had very little oversight other than the fact we were generating fonts to do them, and I sort of signed off on title pages and so forth. We also were very appealing to Awesome when they started up, which was around the same time. Yeah. We were also more appealing to DC, who were getting used to the idea of digital lettering. Paul Levitz held out a long time. Julie Rottenberg was the last editor I had to convince that we could do it and make it look good. Peter Gross wanted us to work that way. He was on Books of Magic. A lot of people got wise to the advantages of digital lettering, the speed, the 
the utility. But I always, every year I was like, wow, we're still at the cutting edge. And, and I do believe that my five years in editorial gave me the edge. Because I was an editor who did lettering. So I ran my studio the way I'd run my office at Marvel. Deadlines, deadlines, shipping. This is how you talk to editors. I knew how to appease the, the dreaded deadline doom, right? But even then, my intention was self-publish. So the moment I went through that process of John Burns doing it, we're doing it, other letters are doing it, we're doing it, there'll be in-house lettering. The guys from Malibu came to my studio and said, yeah, we want to set up an operation like yours. Went, okay, they're going to do it. Digital Chameleon started doing it. But I had a conversation once with Danny Fingeroff at Marvel in New York. He said, so Richard, you know, you're doing a lot of the work now. But what happens when we get a hold of one of your farms? and start doing lettering in-house. And I said, Dan, I won't be doing your lettering then. But the guy that does the best job in the bullpen is the guy you'll want on your books. And he'll be the guy that the editor in your, the next office wants on his books. And the same problem will arise. It's not just the font. It, it's the person yeah. doing the work, which is true now. You know, If I was getting a book lettered in-house, uh, at DC five years ago, I'd want Jared K. Fletcher. He's one of the best of the, their bullpen boys that I think now works freelance. A lot of the guys that worked freelance at DC, uh, that worked in-house at DC, they bought sets of our fonts, they licensed them, they hired people to work in-house, those guys ended up freelance again. Because you always recreate the quickest solution to the problem. Freelancers are more motivated. You don't have to pay for their computer, their fonts. You don't have to pay for their heating, the roof over there. Everything is the same commodity, and I knew that would be the case too. But also, there was a sense of sort of self-fulfilling prophecy in that I wanted to publish. So I sold fonts with the idea that as the lettering workload dropped, as people priced me out, income from selling them the fonts would increase and become another source of income. Yeah. So I predicted and anticipated that in 92. And in fact, within a year of hiring John Rochelle full-time, I said, this is the game plan. We're going to letter comic books. We're going to hire assistants. We're going to have as many people working as we can. We had a studio. We had a big studio space in Santa Monica. Ultimately, telecommuting became the way of keeping down costs. The moment you could email something five megabytes in a split second, <laughs> everything changes. Technology changes. And I knew that a letter would be expected to do more and more and more and more. And sure enough, that's, that's the way it's gone. But I wanted to have that source of income that would allow me to publish and own what I created as stated in the, you know, the Northampton Creators' Bill of Rights, to fully own what you fully create. That had got stuck in my head in the 80s and 90s. You know, we've worked since with... You know, I've worked with Dave Sim. He did some pages of Elephant Man. I've worked with uh, Kevin Eastman, and these these are the creator-owned heroes. You know, these are the pioneers. The pioneers. These are the guys that figured out what a good idea it was to own something. But I also knew I needed money to do that. The fact that it became Hip Flask and Elephant Man was I didn't know that. I didn't know that I had an idea that developed as a way of selling the font. Ironically.
I was thinking about Elephant Man and Hip Flash, obviously in anticipation of talking to you. And But I remember when I saw Elephant Man as a comic, I thought to myself, that's a thing? Like, that that's the logo for... That hippo is a logo. Mascot, yeah. So, so he wasn't intended originally as you had this bigger story. You just designed this character and Brian Ballin would draw these ads and they looked really cool. But they were ads for lettering. It turns out yeah. they became more than that. That's some, something I really enjoy about the story, which is I approached uh, Jim Lee. Uh, we'd done a font we called Wild Words for Wildcats Adventures. A very popular font. Very popular font. And that was when I knew I had something because we sold that at a $29 on a diskette at San Diego one year and uh, never made more money at San Diego before or since because nobody had a font. Yeah. And we were such a... And San Diego wasn't the circus it is now. So anybody that wanted a font bought it from us. And, and the idea was maybe it was $25 or $20 because Wizbang would cost $29 my order. So I, I wanted to undercut what the market was determining as the price of a font as a sale item. We don't sell it usually at a low price like that. So I thought, well, I need to promote this. So I said to John Nee, who's working some of the time, can we license Wildcat and sell this font? And he was open to the idea, but nobody thought that selling fonts was a way of making money. Every corner of the comic industry, nobody's interested in chump change. Yeah. They want to make millions. So that didn't really happen, and I didn't really want to pay a big fee. You know, I wanted to sort of give a royalty. So I went to Marvel and met with Bob Harris and Ben Rabb at the time and said, you know, can we do... I came up with the idea of an X-Men Zero where there would be no lettering. You'd sell, you'd have a script, the artwork, to letter yourself. And Bob was like, sounds like a good idea. Let me put you in touch with somebody and licensing never happened. So I thought, well, what I need is my own character. And I did have a cartoon strip that I was doing for a Buddhist newspaper uh, called the World Tribune. It was a character I created in a notebook when I moved out to... America, I had a, a dummy copy of the real Ghostbusters annual, which had blank pages, and I would just doodle in there. And I came up with this character called Hedge Backwards. And it was sort of, you know, I, I love Tintin. I love the style of Tintin. I love the clean lines, the style of European artwork. And Dave Gibbons had once said uh, that Br British market didn't have a Tintin. So when I did this doodle, I was like, that looks like sort of my version of Tintin, but it was based on me. And, and his adventures were based on moving to the U.S. First, it ran in the El Segundo Herald when I was living in El Segundo, and I'd make jokes about uh, El Segundo and sometimes get complaints. There's a uh, sewage treatment facility in El Segundo, and it's famously referred to as Smell Segundo, so I made jokes about the smell in El Segundo. Then, you know, I posed it to the Buddhist newspaper, and it was more of my spiritual sort of realizations, but, but informed by all the comic scripts I'd ever read. And I really tried to grow it. But he wasn't a character designed to have adventures. You know, it was just me. Yeah. So, it, what I, you know, so if I went and got my hair cut, I'd do a cartoon about getting my hair cut. Sure. So I tried to write something with Hedge Backwards, where he was a reporter for a newspaper, and I tried to write something with a lot of sound effects. <laughs> because my idea was, you can sell sound effect font. And it just, I, I remember sitting at the Comic Craft Studio one night trying to write the script. 
that doesn't work. You need a character that gets into trouble. So I thought, well, a private eye. And then I came up with the name Hip Flash for a private eye because, you know, a private eye has a hip flash. Sure. I used to love all the sort of names in Asterix. Various Flavius is one of the centurions in Asterix. Asterix is a footnote. Yeah. Obelix. You know, all these names are artifacts made names. And I love the idea of nouns becoming proper nouns. The hip flask struck me. And I had contributed the name Vanity Case to the Sleaze Brothers in the 80s. And we created that because I, I wanted the Sleaze Brothers who were pro- bumbling private eyes that resembled the Blues Brothers in, in certain ways. And I wanted them to have a, a foil, a female private eye. And I gave the name Vanity Case. So Vanity Case, hip flask, same sort of mindset. I told my wife, you know, I've got this character called Hip Flash with a private eye, and she said, that's, everybody's got that. you know, that's, that's just, you know, generic. What does that mean? And I said, he's a hippo. Just, it'd probably been bouncing in my head. You know, is he human? Is hip, hip Flash, hippo? So that really sort of started the unraveling process of creating something that I was familiar with. And I think, you know, Cerebus was owed so much to Conan the Barbarian. It was Cerebus the Aardvark, but it was a parody. Yeah. And it took me a long time to start seeing the influences on Hip Flask. And I didn't even know until I started doing Hip Flask that the thing is my favorite Marvel character. You know, because you intuitively think, well, Spider-Man. But I, I realized over the years that I really liked Fantastic Four because it's more science fiction. Clearly, I'm magnetized towards a more science fiction. And I always loved this man, this monster, in um, Fantastic Four, the guy standing in the rain. Yeah. You know, and the, one of the very first images that the drone did is it in the rain. You know, and it was subconscious until I start, until you start sort of unpicking your own creativity. Yeah. And uh, you know, Ian Churchill did me a poster with it flask and vanity case and the villain horn and just I, I had the luxury of developing a character. And the luxury of showing pinup shots first without a story. Through and these ads. Through these ads. Yeah. And we would do twofold. We would do a T-shirt, a poster, have an ad, and sell fonts to, to create that feeling. Is, it, is this real? Yeah. And also, I really didn't realize that Blade Runner was my favorite movie until I started developing Elephant Man. You know, and, and you know the rain, the... Giant buildings. Yeah, the you know, super techno future. Yeah, yeah. So, and everybody thought I was doing a private eye. And even though I grew up in the 70s watching Bojack, Columbo, Harry O, Rockford Files, my favorite actors, I'd, that was because they were fun and there was a lot of them. You know? yeah. But really, I was watching UFO, Planet of the Apes, you know, look around my studio. Well, that's. I was, so <laughs> Doctor Who, Alien. We talked once before and we, we realized we had the same state of mind in terms of the comics you make wanting to recapture a feeling you yes. had when you were young as yeah. opposed to putting your stamp on a thing yeah. or reinventing a thing yeah. that already exists. I, I feel there's two kinds of, of creative people. There are, and, I, and I've, I've sort of, I've known a lot of people who are Doctor Who fans turn pros. Yeah, there are a lot of those. They're Doctor Who pros. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Not just people that started out as Doctor Who fans, but they became Doctor Who professionals. Paul Cornell is one of them. Um, he wrote to me when he was a teenager wanting to know how to become a writer, and the first thing he wrote was a Doctor Who story. 
And I didn't know then that he was a big Doctor Who fan. Um, and of course now he was one of the writers on the first couple of series. Gary Russell I've known many years. And he ended up a script editor on... Uh, firstly, he was on the, the Big Finish Doctor Who audios. Then he was on the show, Sorry Jane Adventures, Tortured. He's done everything. And same is true in comics. There are friends of mine whose goal is to write Spider-Man. Yeah. And my goal was never to write Doctor Who or Spider-Man, but to be the guy that created Doctor Who or Spider-Man. So there are people like Kirkman who love Marvel and DC superheroes and, and spent time working at Marvel for a while. But their real goal was to create something that they hand back to their childhood, in a way. It's, yeah. Are you trying to recapture and control? Well, it's, it's writing for yourself now or writing for yourself at yeah. 9 or 15 or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, when I came into your space here and I looked around, it, it, it hit me that that's what Because I was going to ask you this idea of what makes a great character, what makes a great story, and what you seek out in the things you read. And then I was extrapolating that with the notion of writing something for a version of yourself. Yeah. And as soon as I came into this space, I said, okay, he's he's writing for the young Richard Starkings who loved this sci-fi stuff and yeah. went into this world of Blade Runner and Doctor Who and all. So that's that's what you're... Alien. Yeah. You, you know, and I think... It's not... And you're right. It's not yeah. a detective story. But, it's but a, I never... Yes, exactly. Blade Runner doesn't work as a detective story. You know, it, it, you know Harrison Ford famously said he doesn't do a lot of detecting. He does a lot of hunting down and killing... But really, what is it's it's a noir trapping for a vision of the future, and there are a lot of real sci-fi ideas in it. And I think what appeals to me about Fantastic Four, and especially the thing, is his feet are on the ground. You know, that, that that's the character that appeals to me. Dread, his feet are on the ground. The Doctor, his feet are on the ground. Superheroes' feet are not on the ground. Yeah. They are gods. You know, I'm attracted to the fantasy around a human being even though my characters are human-animal hybrids. Yeah. So, and, and in the same way, the replicants in Blade Runner are replicants. Yeah. They're not human. And I really enjoyed Prometheus, which is about, really, it's about this character, David, who is a replicant. It's really about his dilemma. What orders to follow? What moral decisions to make? Um, and I think that's where there's a lot of interesting things to be learned about the human condition. And that's not to say that superheroes you can't. I think what I liked about Miller's Daredevil was it was grim and gritty. That he lived in this, you know, it's a wrestling world. It's, it's a world of wrestlers. In, in the same way that Sin City is. Everybody's a bruiser. Yeah. But the stakes are so high. You know, so the kingpin is the natural Miller antagonist because he, he can beat you up physically. He can find out what weakens you emotionally and he can crush you financially. You know, that's not... Right. I had a conversation with Jeff Scott Campbell, and, and Jeff's a great. He comes from the same place I do, which is, you know, he created Danger Girl, he created uh, Wild Siders, which didn't conclude, but he wanted to create. You know, he he came up with Danger Girl when he was watching Pulp Fiction, and in Pulp Fiction, is the Fox Force Five. Fox Force Five. Yeah. Uma Thurman says, I was in a pilot for yeah. five. And Jeff tells me that he sat there thinking. <laughs> you know, and of course, what he did was recreate Charlie's Angel. Right? Yeah. Which then 
seemed to me to steal from Danger Girl when it became a movie, even though they didn't carry guns and so forth. So he took that idea of Fox Force 5 and made it his own as Danger Girl. And later, Quentin Tarantino did Fox Force 5. Kill Bill is Fox Force 5. But Lucy Liu could be a Danger Girl or she could be in... A Charlie's Angel. Yeah. Or, or Kill Bill. Was she in Kill Bill? Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, she's, she's... it's really interesting how he took that idea and went in this direction. Tarantino took it in this direction and headed more towards Kung Fu, which is another concept I love. Right. You know. So the conversation I had with Jeff was that he was drawing Thundercat Zero, and I was the editor of Thundercat, and I hated it because it's so difficult to get stories out of it because it's a great idea on paper, and it looks interesting, and children respond to the idea that cats are humans. Sure did. Yeah. We got in trouble once because we had Tigra, and he was looking savage, and he was foaming at the mouth, and I actually had to fire the editor that was working on the book. I had to switch assignments with him because he took it in a more adult direction. But, but I understood his frustration because they're cats. They have teeth. They have claws. But they can't hurt anybody. Right. Mumra is the constant enemy in this legion of toys because it was really a toy line that, that got itself in that series. So I said to Jeff, How can, what do you like about Thundercat? He said, oh, no, you know, when I was a kid, I thought, that's, that's the key. When you were emotionally vulnerable, you connected with something exciting and colorful, and characters were, were sharply defined. And so he drew this zero issue, and he, every page in that is, is almost like a flash page. Beautiful Chitara, Lion, everything's even smart. Yeah. Um, it's beautiful. And it, but when he finished, he said, Richard, I know what you mean. What, 13 pages is enough, you know, or 12 pages, whatever he said. I don't know if I can do it. I'm, I'm, I'm done. Whereas, you know, but he would quite happily, you know, he was he's done two issues of the Spider-Man series that may or may not be a six, twelve issue series, because there's a there's a lot of great ideas in Spider-Man, great ideas in Star Wars, great ideas in Doctor Who. So it's very easy, I feel, to be the child of that generation, where there's a, a show like Star Trek or Doctor Who, or Planet the Apes, or any of these franchises where you have an idea that will make it work. The big problem is that so do a thousand people like you, or a million people like you. And, you know, Dan Slott got torn to shreds over uh, Superior Spider-Man, but that's because other people think that they know how to do it better. Nobody knows how to do Elephant Man better than I do. Even, even as I'm writing this issue, though, I'm thinking, I'm, I'm putting so many ideas into this issue, I keep thinking, that panel is a miniseries. And, you know, if this was Marvel, one day it would be a miniseries. So the reason I'm rereading Fantastic Four is to see how loose it was, how quickly they move stories along. Sometimes 12 pages of stories done. How quickly they got onto another character instead of six issues to tell the story of the scroll. Yeah. And I was looking at the Moleman story and I was like, this is, today it's a six-issue series. But Stan and Jack were like, Oh man, quick, bam, big monsters. You get yeah, so behind. You want to make a splash. Yeah. You know, you don't you don't have the luxury of knowing something will be collected or that no. somebody will read it in the future. This was it's disposable entertainment. Yeah. And now and you cheap. have a guaranteed audience and you know, no disrespect to people who make their living at Marvel or DC. It's a lot easier to do a watch the four Watchmen miniseries, Kingpin miniseries, or you know somebody asked 
online recently, and what would you do? If you could write any comic book character, what character would you do? And I said, elephant. <laughs> because I don't want to fall into that mindset of thinking about something where the thinking's already done for me, because I'm going to run into that problem. The, the exception to that is kind of, I'm so glad that they exist. <laughs> I'm so glad people want to write Doctor Who. I'm so glad Russell T. Davis wants to write Doctor Who. I'm so glad Stephen Moffat wants to write Doctor Who. But I couldn't. And even when I think about it, I don't want to, you know, and I've done Doctor Who comic strips and been happy with them, but I'm at that point now where I can't even think, well, what would I do with the Fantastic Four? Jonathan Hickman did it. Bless him. Yeah. Jonathan is a great creator of his own project, which I prefer. I would rather he was doing his own project because it's like, I don't know what's going to happen. And I, I like that feeling of not knowing which direction. We know that the Doctor's going to win the end. We know that Spider-Man is going to be Peter Parker again. Sorry, spoilers. Yeah. We know these things. But what excites me is when I see something new, like Breaking Bad or Dexter or uh, anything that's ongoing, where you're in that possibility, you're filled with that feeling of anticipation because you don't know. And I think that you know what's attractive about Image Comics or any independent comic, you know, Robert Kirkman launched Walking Dead, and I think in his letters page he said this is the story of Rick Grimes. But 100 issues later, I'm not so sure it is. But that's kind of interesting, you know. Yeah. How much more harm can he do to Rick emotionally, physically? And, you know, the, if you follow the concept of the size of the obstacle determines the size of the hero, eventually you have to give that character the biggest obstacle, which may be death and it may, or it may be uh, a, a no-win situation if that's such a bleak world, you know. And I think that, you know, it's very hard to maintain a body count. comic. You know, the X-Men at one point started to be a body count comic. And they split the X-Men up and they resurrected characters. And you can't really do that in a sort of grim and gritty horror comic, even though, you know, talking about zombies. Yeah. So I think, you know, I'm, I'm definitely attracted to, as much as I loved, like, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, I love the reboot of Star Trek because it's like, wow, great, now we've got a clean plate and it can go this way or it can go that way. So we have the sort of pleasure of a reboot but with a different imperative. You know? And I think that's what I see going on with young people is you know, like Adventure Time is a great example of, oh my God, the rules I've learned don't apply and yet they're still rules. So... Kids' imaginations now, we, we have a lot of creative properties that are more like Japanese creative properties, like Transformers. Only the Americans needed the Transformers to be logical. The Japanese market didn't need it to be logical. That's why you have incredible things like Totoro, Mickey Delivery Service, all the Miyazaki stuff, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Is, you know, is, is like the Turtles without the feeling that it has to make sense. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is a global phenomenon because they're Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Done. It yeah. does what it says on the tin. Adventure Time, it does what it says on the tin. Yeah, and Powerpuff Girls. And if you wanted to really sort of look at it, you know, and, and this is just because I've, I have looked at it, Adventure Time, the guy who created it, Penn Ward, is a huge gamer. He's into, he's into role-playing games and video games, and it's all there, but it's, it's extrapolated through this, this, the eyes of a, of a 9-year-old, 11-year-old yeah. kid who's just in the game. I was watching my and kids play Hollow Planet 
Big planet. Big hollow planet. I'm not a gamer, so I don't okay. know. They're playing this game where they design what their characters look like. And I was like, no, no, you can't do that. You can't be in somebody else's creative universe and have your creativity inside of there. And my son just looked at me and said, what? <laughs> you know, he didn't understand that he doesn't have that freedom. Whereas those people that grew up on Spider-Man have been trained. He wears red and blue. This is his origin. These are his girlfriends. This is his aunt. So they're stuck with this, these sort of rules yeah. that don't apply today because those rules apply because of the way the markets work. Gaming has changed everything. And, you know, I'm teaching a comic book class to 16-year-olds. Get them anywhere close to what I'm talking about. I started with memes. Because memes is the new word for cartoons. You know, Daddy, I saw this meme on Facebook. What, what, that translates to me as I saw this cartoon or this comic strip on Facebook. So the first project I set for my class was, right, Facebook memes. This is what my dad thinks I do. This is what my mom thinks I do. This is what my girlfriend thinks I do. This is what my cat thinks I do. This right. is what I actually do. That's a, cost, that's a comic strip. Sure. The kids don't think that's a comic strip. They think about comics almost the way we thought about plays. Like, oh, no, that's something, you know, my dad read. You know, my dad used to go to plays, you know. So they have this disconnect from something that has infiltrated other media. So Spider-Man is coming out. My son doesn't ask me to read a Spider-Man comic. He says, can we pre-order the PlayStation game? Can we get that on Blu-ray when it comes out? And, and, and that, he accepts, is real. Whereas we think that the comic's real. Yeah. Yeah, we're both wrong. It's an imaginative... Yeah, it's all make-believe. Yeah, it's all make-believe, and the continuity of the movies, all the Avengers movies, is tightly worked out, but it now belongs to that multi-million dollar audience and not to this niche market. However, Elephant Men is still, for me, a growing seed. It's still... I'm sort of using what I've learned and what I continue to learn to harvest it, you know, and... If I'm done at 80 issues or 100, whatever it is, I will have put all that thought and energy into that. And then it will take on a life of its own. You know, I've seen that with friends who've had projects that you know, take... I mean, Walking Dead has taken on a life of its own now. Yeah. Somebody was saying, do you think they'll put Daryl into the comic? And I was like, oh, I would. <laughs> you know, because that's sort of unexpected too, and that sort of takes ownership of it. Uh, but I could, I'll understand if Robert doesn't put Daryl into the comic too. But it's interesting now how here's a comic book in its 107th issue and a TV show in its 20th episode or whatever with two different fan bases that, that overlap a little bit. But the TV series is predominant. Which, ta- which tail wags which dog? Yeah, and luck- luckily Robert's involved in both. Yeah. Um, but I-, I asked him quite recently, I said, you know, when you're in a story, when you're in the room with eight of the writers and they start discussing an idea, you, you go off on another tangent, because that's what my experience has been, talking about the movie of Elephant Man. Yeah. I'll think, oh, that's good. And I'll sit in a meeting for 40 minutes, plotting out an issue while they're talking about something that I'm done with. <laughs> you know, I, I've already gone through that thought process, because creating something is extremely demanding. I, I You know, I used to wonder why people like Garth Ennis only wrote Preacher or Neil Gaiman only wrote Sandman for that period of time. 
now I have the utmost respect for them because it demands every corner of your imagination. And there doesn't seem to be room for me sometimes to think about anything else. You know, when I was working with uh, Justin Norman Moritat on Elephant Men, he said, Richard, I'm thinking about Elephant Men all the time. I didn't believe him because I was thinking about Elephant Men all the time. But, you know, you, you, you have to sort of jump in with both feet. Whereas my fear would be that I could get into the idea of writing Fantastic Four and it would take a lot of my best ideas. You know, so not that I... I firstly, I would love to be offered opportunities but it's clearly not where my intention lies because I don't seek them. No, I, I understand. I mean, I had I had my period where I, all I wanted to do is I wanted to do Power Pack. Like that was the book I would have loved to have written and drawn as Power Pack. Mm. And then you know you look for the properties that nobody's using, and you yeah. find these properties. You try and develop stories to pitch them, and something clicked with me where I thought I'm pretty much coming up with all new stuff. I'm doing a full reinterpretation of whatever this thing is, and nobody's interested. So I'm going to just turn it into its own thing, tweak here and, and if there. If you had done it, people would have compared it to right. what Louise Simonson and Gene Bigman was it? Uh, Power Pack, yeah. Yeah, they w you would be compared. Yeah, and and you know at that point when you've when you've come up with a new thing, you've come up with a new thing. Yeah. But I see what you're saying in that yeah. you you learn from the people who came before you, and there are enough people who have worked in the system and then broken free and done their own thing that you go. It's a viable option. Yes. And, well, and more so today. You know, yeah. I think digital sales will ultimately support everybody, except we don't have a 60-year-old library to milk. But nobody really needs a 60-year-old yeah, yeah, library. We can you only need your own. Advantage. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And, and easier to maintain. And you know what? struck me originally when I launched Elephant Man, I got a lot of positive reviews, and I thought, well, how did that happen? But I think what people respond to is that you have created something new and it's harder to judge and dismiss something new than to judge and dismiss issue 700 of Spider-Man. A hundred years from now, when people discuss Batman, it'll be Batman created by Bob Kane. It doesn't matter whether Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale did two great Batman series. It doesn't matter that Tim Lee did. It doesn't matter that Neil Adams did. Ultimately, the creator is the person who is property, even if it has become a property. And that's something that sunk in with me. I was fortunate to meet the people I met, you know, including uh, people on both sides of the fence. You know, Dave Gibbons loves comics. He loves a lot of DC characters. He works on Green Lantern, but he also creates, you, you know. Watchmen was something full of love for superheroes through the ciphers that they created, one of which was uh, Night Owl that was based on the character they created in his childhood. So Mark Wade is doing a great run on Daredevil. He's yeah. shaken the cobwebs off for Frank Miller Daredevil. When Frank Miller did Daredevil, nobody cared about Daredevil at that point. Nobody really thought of that character as a great character. He made it great again because he basically wrapped his Sin City-type ideas in Red Spandex. Yeah. And then he cast such a long shadow as he did with Dark Knight. But really, when you distill Frank Miller's material down, he's been writing, you know, he's, he's written in the same mindset. You know, it's, it's the same world. It's a grim and gritty, people get killed. Joker dies at the end of the Dark Knight, spoiler. And, um, you know, 
the longest time, people were writing dead like Frank Miller. And some, some stuff was great. The Fall of the Kingpin by Dan Chichester and Lee Weeks was fantastic. You know, a lot of the work that has been done since. But it was paying homage to Frank Miller, whereas Mark Waid has come in and sort of made it fun again. Yeah. And, and I can read it because I'm not like weighed down by continuity. And I think it's a natural, it's a necessity when you work on a established character to, to re-energize it. I always used to think, why is it every time there's a new creative team they have to tell the origin? Well, you need to. You need to address your new audience. You, and, and comics should be reaching new audiences, not preserving old ones. And I think that that has haunted comics for a long time. And you're a favorite person who is considered, you, know, you, you, you are attentive to the history, you're thoughtful about the future, you are a Buddhist. And I think I, there's no way that doesn't have a connection to how you approach the world. Yeah. Your, your awareness, your, your, my understanding of Buddhism, which is probably, uh, but I'm fascinated by it. Just in terms of, not as a, as a religious thing, but as a way of functioning in the world. And you, we were just talking before we started recording that the, the form of Buddhism you practice is not the meditative version, which is the one I, I'm more aware of, where you, you take time, you quiet your mind, you organize your, your you calm your thoughts, you don't ignore them, but you, you find a way to, to be present. Sure, the Western, you know, in the Western world, we have a sort of idea that Buddhism is about retreat. Retreat into one's mind, retreat into the mountains, retreat into a monastery. Right. And I like to say that the kind of Buddhism I practice, which is the Buddhism of Nishirandai Shonen, who was a 13th century Japanese monk that sought to find a practice that would relieve suffering, which is the practice of the original Buddha, Shakyamuni, who his highest teaching is the Lotus Sutra. So this is a Buddhism based on the highest teaching of Shakyamuni Buddha. So I like to describe it as a Buddhism of advance, not retreat. Because both Shakyamuni and uh, Nishundai Shonin determined that we have to live in this world of suffering. The world of the four sufferings, which are birth, sickness, old age, and death. Those are the four sufferings that Prince Shakyamuni left the palace having had a closeted, you know, closeted life because his uh, father didn't want him to suffer. But eventually he got outside the palace world and saw suffering and determined, you know, how do we relieve suffering but experience it too. So the, the Buddhism of Nishundai Shonen is based on the highest teaching, which is really about uh, encountering the sufferings of this world encountering the effects of our own causes throughout eternity, because life is eternal in Buddhism. So if you've made a cause, you will experience its effects. Its effect. Maybe today, maybe a week from today, or another lifetime. And this is, this is what people usually distill into just saying karma. Karma. Well, karma is a Sanskrit word. It literally means action. When people say, it's my karma, what I hear is, Actions I've taken have delivered these effects. You know, how could that be? We tend to start practicing Buddhism. Those that practice Buddhism, because of our Judeo-Christian upbringing, 
we tend to take out the word God and put in Buddha. We tend to take out the word fate and put in the word karma. But these are not interchangeable properties. You know, there's a big difference between understanding that your fate is not predestined and understanding your karma. When you understand your karma, you realize that if you want to understand the effects you're experiencing today, look at the causes you made in your past. If you want to understand the effects you'll experience in the future, look at the causes you're making in the present. So it is mindfulness, which is also... People think of meditation as mindfulness, but mindfulness is be careful what you say, be careful who you say it to, be careful what you do and who you do it to or with, and you know everything from thought, word to deed, because these are all create one's karma. You know, when you think something, you influence the world. But when you say it, it's a, it's a deeper imprint. When you do it, it's an action, it's karma. It will have its effect. So it is about becoming master of one's own mind, but in this practice, the concept of Bono Soko Bodai is a Buddhist concept meaning earthly desires are at the same time enlightenment. So we're all of us born with our own desires. And desire literally means of the Father. Desire. We give birth to it. They're ours. You are going to be the father of your intention. So you and I end up in comic books. But my, my sister doesn't work in comic books. She's a speech therapist. Because we each of us have... We, we bring the effects of previous causes into this life. So there's a certain thing that's, that we pursue. And... This Buddhism teaches pursuit of your earthly desires because in them lies your enlightenment. And the truth is, the quicker you get to realize that, that the earthly desire itself is not the enlightenment, but the process, then you start to realize, wait a minute, if I want to be happy, people around me need to be happy too. The true Buddhism teaches selflessness and selfishness are one because you cannot really you don't become happy yourself, how can you cause other people to be happy? So it is about you know, lighting the way for somebody else, helping them seek their true, absolute happiness, which is about, we chant Nam Yoho Kyo. Nam Yoho Kyo literally means, I devote myself to Lotus Sutra. Myoho Renge Kyo is the title of the Lotus Sutra. Um, Myoho means law. Renge um, means lotus flower. And the lotus flower is, is a symbol worldwide of Buddhism because it seeds and flowers simultaneously, which is a recognition of the law of cause and effect. But even though we don't always see the flower and the seed simultaneously, it doesn't mean there's no flower with the seed. It, it is about recognizing that every time you plant a seed, it's a cause, the effect is simultaneous even if it takes years, even if it takes lifetime, because the effect is planted. Kyo uh, means activated by sound. So you summon your Buddhahood, which is also known as the ninth consciousness. All of us have nine consciousnesses, whether we're aware of them or not. First five, previous non-consciousness. Sixth is when you gather that information, the sixth sense is you make judgments based on your five senses. 
the seventh and the eighth are what we call karma storage because you have personal karma storage and you have cultural karma storage. So we've chosen to be in America. Some people choose to be born in America, some in India. And when I say choose, I mean we've made causes the effects of which is this is what we need to learn in this lifetime now. This is the ideal circumstance. You start to recognize, okay, the environment around me is a product of my own desires. So it's here for me for a reason. So I can choose to learn from it or I can despise it. But despising it, blaming it, the concept of Ashrafuni is... In Buddhism we have a lot of concept of oneness. Whereas in Judeo-Christian philosophies separate. Heaven, hell. God, the devil. Right, wrong. So naturally, in those philosophies you tend to... You want to be sort of as good. But if there's no gray area you're going to be bad, right? So but Buddhism is the middle way. So it recognizes that you cannot have a life without both. We talk about the oneness of good and evil, about the oneness of self and other, that the other person is of the self, and that we come into contact with other people for us to learn and teach and share. So, Eshofuni, the oneness of self and environment, is everything that you encounter in the environment product your life. So why is it some people meet millionaires all the time or good hearted people all the time or dark hearted people all the time? Well it's coming to reflection. And, and once you start to recognize, oh, I'm getting back what I'm putting out, even though I see it as separate. And that can be positive or negative, you know. If you're surrounded by good-hearted people, then that's, that's a pretty life-affirming understanding. It's all fascinating. <laughs> it really, I mean, it really is. And, and I think we could talk forever about everything possible. So we will probably keep talking once I stop recording. But I feel like we'll, we'll stop recording now. Okay. And I thank you because I, I look... I actually... Editing is a very tedious part of this because I have to re-listen and pick things out and... I look forward to editing this one, even though it will take me forever. Okay. So thank so you, Richard. Maybe not June or July, or maybe December. It might be a okay <laughs> one. Thank you, Richard. Okay, thank you, Greg. All right, confession time. I am a giant liar, and here's why. I did not enjoy editing that at all. Well, all right, maybe a little bit, because I thought it was a nice conversation. But without getting into the details, that one was a pain in the butt. It was audio issues. It was my fault. I hope the audio was, was good or decent, at the very least. I did everything I could, folks. I promise. But you can let me know. You can email me at stuffsaid at gmail.com. You can reach me on Twitter at stuffsaidshow. You can go to the website, stuffsaidshow.com, and leave comments. I, I see all this stuff, and I, uh, I usually respond to it. I make an effort to. It might take a couple of days, but I do respond. You can also, oh, this is a thing that apparently is a thing. If you go to iTunes 
and you rate the show, hopefully five stars, write a review if you want. That apparently helps the show get noticed, get whatever the Apple logarithms are. I don't know. Or you can listen to the show at acmewaveprojector.com, which is the network run by Acme Comics and their podcast. I don't know what the word is. I'm running out of words, folks. I'm sorry. I think, is that everything? I do this every time. I should write a list. I should write down what all the things are that I say at the end of the show. What I really should do is I should just record a thing that I put at the end of the show with all this information. And then I won't be a rambling uh, person. I was going to say, I was going to say jackass. And then I almost didn't. And then I did. And now I just did. Oh, boy. All right, guys and gals. That's about all the stuff I have to say. See you next time.